Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. I hope you're having a glorious day. And also wanted to say thanks to those of you who've been getting in touch to send appreciation for the episodes with Tiago and Corey. It really makes my day hearing from you guys. And my email is johnnymiller at mac.com if any of you would like to say hi or ask a question. This is kind of an unusual episode as the tables were turned by my good friend Mike Slavin, who interviewed me at his home in Boulder, Colorado. And although he began asking the questions, our conversation quickly escalated into a two-way mind-melding jam, exploring territory that I don't think either of us had anticipated. We talked about definitions of wonder, ambition, the role of inviting in the unexpected, the difference between purpose and destiny, and way more. So for me, this felt like a real honor. Mike is trained as a magician. He's also the CEO of a wonderful organization called High Existence, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already heard of it. But as you'll hear, he's, he's one of the most articulate and poetic people that I've ever come across. And he has a gift for bringing forth ideas that I don't think either of us realized were lurking. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this adventure of a conversation with Mike Slavin. All right. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Slavin and I'm here with the wonderful Johnny Miller. He's a good friend of mine, someone who I met around this time last year and have had the good fortune of spending a few weeks with him while he's been here in town in Boulder. And we've had many uh, uh, various kinds of discussions talking about everything from poetry to courage to curiosity. And we've been meaning to sit down and have have a chat. So Johnny, I'm excited that we were finally able to do this and I'm excited to explore some rich terrain with you today. Yeah, it's it's great to be here. And I feel like there were so many points in the last couple of weeks when we could have hit record and had a great conversation. But um, today's my last day in, in Boulder, in Colorado. So I'm glad that we're able to make this happen. Absolutely. And I remember the first day I met Johnny, we've all probably had these experiences where we drop in with someone and we know like, Damn, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a good relationship. I remember we we sat across from each other and immediately dropped into discussing like intricacies of Alan Watts thinking. And I love Alan Watts; he's such a such an OG for me and in, in my sort of spiritual development and all of that stuff. So, uh, very much uh, was excited by your your capacity and your your willingness to explore similar ideas. And I feel like we've only embarked on sort of similar uh, tributaries of thought since then. So I want to begin opening this conversation with uh, a question. Mm. And that is, is there a specific concept or insight that you're working with currently that you find extremely valuable that is worth sharing? Hmm. Wow, good question. Um, Yes. I think that the theme 
that I've been exploring in the last last year really has been a concept of radical or courageous curiosity. And I feel like I've always been a, a very curious person and I consider myself to be a lifelong learner and I just, I've always been that annoying person in classes who just asks too many questions. But I think recently, and particularly the last 18 months or so, I've come to appreciate this this notion of courageous curiosity, which for me is defined as the willingness to explore and look at things which are potentially painful or things which are potentially hard or challenging. And for me, that's been a kind of a guiding a guiding question in a way how can i how can i live my way into this uh, this sense of courageous curiosity and how can i show up in a in a curious way whether it's in conversations like this with you or when i'm journaling or meeting someone new for the first time and so i've been exploring what what this means to me in different areas of my life mm. i love that and when i think about what courageous curiosity means to me, I see it as relevant and so deeply important across so many different domains. This is something that isn't uh, applicable sort of inside of one very fixed context. Um, and I, I want to share some of those and sort of explore that, that rich territory with you. But I'm curious for you, what, is it, what does it look like when you're on the edge of stepping into this courageous curiosity inside what does it feel like when you're when you you're getting signals oh this is a moment to to deploy this this mode of being uh, out into the world i'm curious what mm. what your landscape is like when you're just about to leap into hmm. that kind of disposition ah <laughs> uh, it's um i think it it changes depending on where I'm at, but it, it kind of oscillates between a feeling of of excitement sometimes and also um, fear and that nervous energy. And I think courageous curiosity is the line between the two. Um, I I, th I think back to my time when I was living in living in Brighton, and I used to go for swims in the in the sea around the pier, and it would be kind of eight or nine degrees Celsius, which is I guess like mid thirties in Fahrenheit. And um, every time you you step into that water, there's that initial shock of the cold. And then after a few kind of frantic strokes, <clears throat> I learned to kind of let the cold in. And I think with, with Courageous Curiosity, it, the, the challenging bit is that initial step when you're kind of going into the cold water where there's the initial pain and the initial shock. But then if you can sit with it and uh, maybe this is sitting with uncertainty or sitting with whatever feelings arise, um, it kind of transitions into something new and it takes you to a place that was maybe unexpected or something that you, you couldn't have predicted when you first stepped in. Mm. I love that analogy. Uh, the way it frames how often people exp have the emotional experience. If you consider the there's that barrier, there's that resistance of like this contrast is going to create like a, a shock, a, a sort of stark experience. And I feel afraid of, of leaning into that. 
And then when you're in there, you get to embrace the gift. It's like this, this shock and this, this like resistance is now suddenly transformed into invigoration and aliveness and vitality, you mm -hmm. know, when you're thinking about jumping into this, this cold water. And I love that because it, there's, there are so many gifts to be claimed across that, that chasm of fear, across that, that line that we just need to lean into a little bit, you know? And it's, it's obviously easier if you jump right in. Uh, the transition is easier, but um, sometimes we just need to dip our toes in to begin to feel just some of that, know that our toes can handle the cold and then we can progress from there. So however it is that a person needs to lean into that, that uh, curiosity and, and deploying that courage to allow themselves to arrive there, you know, either way is, is fine. I think the more that a person leans in and has that experience, the more they're uh, you know what the you know what it looks like, and it's mm. just okay. I'm going to jump in. I'm mm. going to go for this and see see what's on the other side here. What gift uh, lies in the hand hands of this perceived problem that I'm I'm resisting to some degree. And using that as almost like using the resistance, inverting it, using it as like a propulsive force in some way. Yeah, I I love that, and I think for me the the learning process has been it's almost like it's like building a muscle like a mm. muscle of courageous curiosity and for me it's been a practice of sitting with the uncertainty when you're in that space and not grasping onto the kind of the easy answers it's almost like if you're if you're floating it, it can be very comforting to want to grab hold of something that feels known and feels familiar um but i think the real practice is sitting and paying attention to what arises like like you said what gifts might be there that were previously unexpected and mm. for me the longer that I can spend in that space of a of a question the more chance of some sort of unexpected grateful surprise or revelation absolutely and as I'm sitting here I'm, I'm having this notion jump to mind related to sense of certainty and so typically how we juxtapose certainty is we compare it to a sense of uncertainty. We try to get out of uncertainty and arrive at certainty. And the, way, the framing of that, even when you, when you look at the words, it implies a loss of something. When we're comparing certainty to uncertainty, we're framing it as if, oh, we either have certainty or we have this thing that is not certainty. It's the absence of certainty. So I'm inviting the question in this moment, if rather than thinking the, of the juxtaposition in terms of the absence of certainty, what if we considered it as curiosity? When you're certain, mm -hmm. do you really have that window and that opening into engaging your curiosity and exploring the unknown? Uh, curiosity requires the unknown. It requires a space that is a frontier in some way that is not clear and is mm -hmm. foggy and hazy. And that when I think about it and hold, hold that, that sort of juxtaposition, it feels much better to me to, to consider, well, when I lose certainty, I, I am invited into curiosity, not just this crazy swirl tornado of uncertainty that is so scary to so many people. Mm. No, I'm invited into this chance to be curious, to, to wonder and to explore. And to me, that, that is, sort of the crux of this position of the power of I don't know. It's okay to not know. 
I think we live in a climate of, uh, you know, the way that people talk to each other, the way that we see our leaders talk to each other, the news media punditry, it punishes people for, for making mistakes and, 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 and these gaffes. And it's, it's really a focus on the noise and not the signal in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And you have the space to just not know and then explore from that place, I think is vital, not only to have the, uh, to have an enriched life and to have a belief systems that can be upgraded. But it's also what it's a requirement for us to actually discover the solutions that we need in order to uh, resolve these intersecting crises that we're exposed to as a species and as a planet right now. Mm, there's so much richness in what, what you just said. And I'm actually getting, yeah, getting goosebumps listening to that. And it, what it makes me think of is I, I asked a question for fun on Twitter a few weeks ago, and the question was, what are some of the enemies to curiosity? And the number one reply was certainty. And it's so interesting. And for me, I think back to when I was at school and how every the way that I and we all were conditioned was to be rewarded for giving the correct answers as opposed to asking good questions. And I think that programming goes, goes very deep for any of us who've been through a traditional schooling system. And I think that the challenge is, as you put it, how can we, how can we almost unlearn and how can we reward each other for sitting with the, with the unknown and for asking good questions and to be saying, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I'm looking to explore and not shooting people down as is the tendency on social media or in the political landscape. Mm, I love that. Yeah, as I, as I think about certainty, what, what jumps to mind is this, the sense of what certainty is for. And so often certainty uh, isn't certain because it's actually certain that it's true, but it's certain because it, it needs to be for some other reason, to, to feel safe to feel protected, to feel um, like you will not be exiled from, from your, your tribe or your affiliations. The certainty, and we see this all the time when, when uh, someone is confronted, uh, even in a genuine way, where their, their beliefs are uh, just being taken to task, even sincerely, and just uh, flaws or holes in the way that they're viewing the world are, are pointed out. And you see the 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 whole machine just sort of start to shut down mm. and these the, the blinders come on the closure sets in and even if what you're saying has merit and value they're incapable of hearing it because of the protective mechanism that's there that's that's put in place they mm. people hold on to this sense of certainty which is really it's it's less a certainty like certainty is a bit of a misnomer in a lot of ways it's more of a a clinging tendency it's a clinging tendency to pre-established worldviews, often inherited from parents or the education system, not even being aware that it's been inherited. Um, other times, to add a little bit of nuance, sometimes it's not just inheriting it from your parents, but you inherit the polarized version. You know, sometimes you see uh, children rebelling so deeply from their parents that they're like very conservative. They they 
go to the other side of the spectrum and become incredibly liberal, but it's not because they've arrived at that place from uh, a genuine intellectual discovery process. They've arrived there to position their identity as in opposition to that thing that made them feel so trapped. Mm. And so I think within this whole conversation in terms of the these uh, these pieces that inhibit people from accessing curiosity, I think fundamentally mm. it's this, this question of rigid identity structures mm. that mm. people hold on to. And now we're starting to get to like deeper metaphysical conversations and stuff like that. But even the simple concept of fixed versus growth mindsets, I think is very useful here um, because it's okay to change your mind. You know, the, uh, the Emersonian quote that I love, uh, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, something like that. Um, and, and also Walt Whitman, uh, you know, uh, if I contradict myself, you know, whatever. So Fe- what if very I, well, I contain multitudes. Yeah, I'm large. <laughs> I contain multitudes and we all do. And so broadening our identity to be more of this assembly of characters mm. who all have uh, various modes and ways of thinking about the world. And we integrate those processes, but it's okay to step into a space of exploring and interacting with novel ideas. And even in the exploration, this is the thing that I feel like you understand so well. We can be curious, and that does not mean that what we find on our travels is something we have to put in our knapsack and take home with us. Mm. We can just be there to explore it and have the experience and know what it is, Mm. but still know that it's not for us. Mm. But we wouldn't know if it's not for us unless we actually went there and and had the journey and had the experience. Mm. Yeah. And what... um... What comes up for me as you as you say that is I, I wonder if the degree that we're able to let go of the, the the clinging onto the certainty is maybe contingent on the degree to which we feel safe and the degree to which we feel a sense of belonging in the world. And the more unsafe we feel in our community or environment, the more we feel the need to grasp hold of these identity structures which give us that sense of safety. And the other thing that comes to mind is that this, uh, this sense of certainty, which I completely, I love what you said about how it's, how it's a misnomer. I think that if you go all the way into certainty, um, it becomes boring. I, I, I remember when I was, I just graduated from university and I was kind of thinking about, you know, what do I want to spend the next chapter of my life doing? What do I want my career to look like? And I looked at some people who were five, 10 years down the line who'd gone into the city and their life was so structured and so rigid. And you could see exactly what they would be doing five, 10, 15 years from that point. And that idea terrified me. Like I wouldn't want to be on a path where there was no opportunity for for surprise or for new directions or for new possibilities or serendipity. And... That was, I mean, that that moment in a way kind of then went on to dictate um, what I did end up doing. But yeah, it's interesting that if we cling so much to certainty, it could almost become uh, trapping, and I think it cages you. Hmm. I love, I love what you're speaking to here, and this is opening a a door in my thinking that is so so core to who I am. You know, the question it invites in me is. Are you certain or are you jaded? <sighs> and I think about it along developmental lines as well. When we think of kids, 
and their their exposure to the world is so limited compared to adults. And so we see the wonder in them. That's why people often speak of, you know, uh, this childlike sense of wonder. That wonder is there because they're exposed to so much novelty and there's, they're naturally curious. These questions are emerging. I mean, that's, that's at least until the education system has enough time to like really try and squeeze it out of them. Um, and here's, here's the piece that I think is so, so relevant and important. It's like, yes, we need to, to learn and develop these ways of thinking about, uh, like about the world, create systems of classification where, you know, as a kid, you start to understand, oh, that's a, that's a tree and that's an elephant and that's a ball. And that's a, we have all of these, these systems, but we have to really avoid falling into a sort of know-it-all syndrome. And just because we have a label for something does not mean we've captured its complexity. It just means we have a way of pointing to it and referring to it. And the way that I love to bring this up and, um, and what I, what I call this capacity is the capacity to marvel. And so if you take something that is very commonplace and you can, you can, you can look at the, what, what is mundane and through your own perception, transform your vantage point so that you see the magic in that thing that is typically considered mundane. Look at a tree. You walk past however many trees a day. And we've seen so many trees. We know what a tree is. You know what a tree is. But the tree that you're sitting in front of has unique texture and, and a unique presence and is its own thing, is, is of itself a unique expression of this thing called the world. And when we're marveling and not op operating from this place of certainty that we already know what it is, then these, these hidden patches of beauty are able to bleed into our perception that otherwise would go unnoticed. And I think this is such an important part of aging gracefully and, and uh, keeping our, our sort of, our way of seeing the world pli more pliable rather than, oh, I have, I have this label that I can tack onto this thing so that means I know what it is. That only means you know what to call it. That doesn't mean you know anything about what it is. Mm. I love that. And I, um, as part of my part of my podcast, I interviewed a twelve-year-old girl called Hannah Lay, and her sense of curiosity was so palpable that I felt like I was almost absorbing it as I was in conversation with her. And I think what you were speaking to in terms of looking at looking at a tree or looking at, at anything really i think our our capacity to marvel or to to be in that state of wonder is is directly proportional to our degree to pay exquisite attention and and i think that actually what a lot of us in this day and age in the adult world certainly are lacking is that capacity for deep attention and i think like you say when you when you examine anything, whether it's a, a blade of grass, as I think Walt Whitman wrote about, um, or another person, or um, yeah, if you, if you look deep into someone, someone's eyes, then really paying attention to what you see as opposed to looking through the filter of what you expect to be there. Mm. That invites in the unexpected and gives the possibility for awe and wonder mm. and I think the fa one of the foundations of that and one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about 
learning and teaching meditation is I think it can train our attentional capacities to more repeatedly get us into these states of awe and wonder and marvel and appreciation of the beauty which is there all around us but we're just almost imprisoned by the mental models and preconceptions that we've built up in our minds Mm, yes 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 and those filters are so hard to see at times because they're they're clear you know we see right through them and we don't even know that we're boxing in the person that we're sitting across across from but what a tragedy that that is for people who can even be loved ones and perhaps consider this of the people in your world listener are there people who you're expecting to show up in a certain way that in doing so you're inhibiting their own growth their own expression because some part of you feels safe if they remain static, if they remain as you have known them to be. And I think that that's a really, really important invitation in any kind of relationship, familial, romantic, giving people the space to grow and bloom in a way is so, so important. And what a, what a gesture in a world that is trying to sort of keep everybody frozen to some degree or another in order to maintain that sense of certainty you know if anyone becomes too too unpredictable it can be very hard um for people to to continue to feel that sense of safety Mm -hmm. and so as the more we're able to cultivate that inward sense of safety we we can rely less on others showing up in that particular way we need them to show up in order to not feel Mm -hmm. um you know so perturbed Mm -hmm. and and you know, in that we can support them along these like trajectories, these paths of growth. So I think that's a really beautiful piece that you, you kind of cracked a window to mm. right there. Yeah, that, that makes me think of um, something that David White wrote about, who is a, um, a poet who we both have a lot of uh, reverence for. And he said that I, I knew my wife so well that she was completely unknown to me. And... Yeah, it's just, um, I, th- I think the challenge when I think about the relationships in, in my life, it, it's, it's making generous assumptions about the people, about people's intentions and um, giving them an opportunity to become someone new. And this is partly what I love about travel as well. I think that travel or even um, deep states of meditation or psychedelic experiences, it's like they, they're a pattern interrupt and they, um, th- there's another analogy used by Michael Pollan that's like snow falling into the grooves of a ski piste that give you the chance to, to make new routes. And mm. I think that we have these really ingrained mental pistes or mental grooves and finding ways to um, shatter those or to to have these pattern interrupts gives us the opportunity to, yeah, explore these relationships. And I think to be in that state of curiosity because the the expected is no longer so so obvious. Mm. I love it. Well, this makes me want to ask, being someone who is such a aficionado of curiosity, are there particular questions that you've come across that you really enjoy that you find really serve you as someone who's trying to wield 
a blade of curiosity in the world that, um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious. I want to pull from your, your bag of tricks. If there's anything that you've found that is just real, really could be a few different questions or if there's one that is, uh, particularly poignant, I'm just curious what, uh, what arises. Mm. So I've been, I've been thinking a lot about what makes for good questions. And I think there certainly are bad questions as well. Um, one that I've particularly found um, powerful in my own kind of journaling practice has been, what is the question that you are afraid to ask? And really sitting with that. And um, I, I sometimes lead these meditations where once you're in a state where you feel calm and tuned in and you almost imagine dropping a question down into a well and letting it letting it sink in and then just as if you're bringing the bucket out from from the depths and just paying attention to see what arises um another question that i've been wrapping up my own interviews with is what do you feel like is the question that you are living your way into the answers to and i think that most most people have a a question that is kind of at the center of their of their lives and the expression of that question can change and evolve over time but i think it's interesting to to instead of thinking that we have these fixed missions or these fixed um identities or purposes maybe we just have these fundamental questions that we're yeah that we're living our way into the answers to mm. i love that I love the first one, what is the question you're afraid to ask? Because that to me feels like it encapsulates the, the essence of courageous curiosity. It's so, so well, it's like that is courageous curiosity in a question. Um, and the other one I really appreciate because of the way that it frames what an answer is. And we live in a world that so deeply prioritizes answers. You were describing this before. We don't answer. Uh, we, we, we spend less attention on questions. And this, there's a, a concept. I forget who it was, who, who, I, who I got it from. But it was, it, it was in uh, a juxtaposition of the word closure. And it was described as openture. And it, as a, as a fundamental disposition, and I think there's so much uh, in our, our way of being, and this is connected back to the education system and having to have information pummeled into us and then regurgitate it. We're, we're, you know, the, we're incentivized for the capacity to produce answers, not to ask questions as you were sharing. And this, this disposition is so, I think, important as it lends itself to this exploration and this invitation to curiosity because the point, it, it reframes the point. The point isn't to find the answer. The point is to be engaged in the process of exploring the question. And when you, when you come to closure, that's like the death. You know, that's the end of the road. So better have a new, a new question. And so I started to relate to life, not as this process of having all of the answers and having them and having them all sorted. And I have my mental filing cabinet and I know where the answer is. If you ask me it, no, it's not, that's not important. That's 
It's not about going and retrieving the answer. It's about being inside of the alive, living context and being open in that state and seeing what emerges and being capable and open enough to explore that space with, with another person. And then if you do arrive at something, a point of closure, then you can really trust that it is bringing in a real high definition, sort of panoramic perspective mm -hmm. to what is really being asked of that moment. So often we like to pull out our answers just to serve as uh, you know, a, a gold star that we know something, even mm. if it doesn't support and furthering what's really alive and living mm. in that moment. And I had this phrase jump to mind years ago now that helped support and sort of restructuring my orientation. And that was asking the question, what if the ultimate answer is shaped like a question? And that put a portal mm. of mystery at the bottom of all of my inquiry of, of the foundation was built on a cloud, so to speak. And that created a degree of liberation or freedom in my, in my exploration and in, in my, my pursuit. It's not about an intellectual, uh, logical, like arrival of some symbolic construct that I can clamp down on. And that's why I love this question of what are the questions you're living into? Because it frames the answers not as some, like a, a, this like logical thing that you can grip your, your hands on. It, it's framed as this more emergent, alive, flowing forth of, of uh, sort of a deeper essence. And yeah, so I love that. There's so much that comes up for me as you talk about that. Um, I, I recently read uh, Kevin Kelly's book. He's the, the founder of Wired Magazine. And he talked about how the the universe itself is almost unfolding as a question and we are kind of at that leading edge or frontier of that adventure or that unfolding and and as, as you were talking before about um maybe finding those grasping hold of those answers too early i think about the, the there's a difference in uh curiosity literature which i've been <laughs> digging into recently between divergent curiosity and epistemic curiosity and this distinction is really interesting for me the former um, divergent curiosity is what we might think of as like being on social media or being on twitter and having our attention pulled in lots of different directions but epistemic curiosity is is the ability to really dive deep into a specific question and to have that sustained attention where i was going with that thread is is i think sometimes there's a tendency to um to, to maybe pick the fruit of an answer before it's ripened and before it's ready and it goes back to kind of to grasping hold of those easy answers but when we're able to to sit with that uncertainty and to wait until um you've gone deep enough and for the the fruit to be ripened that it almost kind of drops off the tree and i think those those answers feel more satisfying and more nourishing. Mm. I love that. This is this is connecting some some dots for me because I'm I'm loving exploring uh, this this notion of the gratification of anticipation, uh, which is connected to the sense of uh, uh, fruitful patience or. Mm -hmm. What 
what happens when we, when we wait joyfully? Because I haven't made this connection before, but now I'm seeing how related it is, this idea of wanting to arrive at closure and wanting to have the answer sort of uh, inside of that as, we, as it applies to waiting for things. We want to quicken the pace and get to the point where we resolve the question. We don't have to wait for this thing anymore. It's here. It's arrived. And I think that there's such a pleasure or, or a, a way of imbibing the, that process of something coming into being, the, the slow folding, the slow unfolding, the slow blooming into, into what is here that can be deeply enjoyed. So what does this mean like in more sort of concrete terms? Whatever it is that we're wanting to bring into our life, what if it's not about those things actually coming here and being here, but how the process of arriving at the place of having it shapes us, how that sculpts us into a person worth holding and having that thing that we want. And so if we try and race to the finish line, we actually miss the, the whole point of having the experience and, and being uh, inside of it and actually being sort of enraptured and enjoying it. Even if you're, imagine, and I think this, I'm not someone who's studied Tantra uh, deeply, but I've been told that this is a similar sort of line of thinking. And I also think of tension, think about tension inside of uh, like positive, like sexual tension. There's, this is kind of the same idea. Like what if you created a sort of sexual tension towards your goals or towards the things that you're wanting to bring into your life where the absence of having it isn't a negative, but actually a positive. It's actually churning up this like sensation of just delight in the waiting, in, in the feeling of the, the anticipation build. And you can have this experience with, with the most simple things. It's back to this question of, uh, you know, the mundane being transformed into magic, a coffee, and awaiting, ordering your coffee and being a part of that process and ha like finally getting your hands on the warm cup and then slowly and then having that first sip. Um, this podcast sponsored by Folgers. No. <laughs> but there's these all of these little gems in these moments to have these kinds of experiences. And this connects me back to what I adore about curiosity is that it allows us to go and probe and find these gems and, mm. and question. Maybe we haven't discovered it just yet. So mm. it's a bit of a, a diatribe, but. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's beautiful. And what that, what that brings up with me is um, something that we've, we've talked about before, but this, this notion of, of ambition and how I know that in, in my own life, certainly in my, my early 20s, I felt like I was very driven to kind of make a, make a dent in the universe, kind of make my mark, leave my, leave my legacy. And then I almost went to the extreme opposite end where I became very suspicious of ambition. And I felt like some of the people who I had previously looked up to were creating the businesses and uh, projects in the world out of a place of, of lack and almost um, filling a void that they were trying to overcompensate for through these achievements and these accolades. And I, I came across this distinction of ambition in the, in the Gita, the kind of 3,000-year-old um, Buddhist text. And 
Krishna is advising Arjuna, who's about to go to war. And he's saying how ambition can be broken up into noble aspiration and intention and outcome. And it, it creates suffering where we grasp hold of the outcome, which is, I think, what you were alluding to there. But if we can live in this place of having a firm intention, but not have, having any certainty about how we're going to get there, I think that's where, that's where the tension, that's where the, the magic can unfold. And so you, you still have this, have this clear direction and this clear pull and your sense of joy and belonging and happiness isn't contingent on this outcome occurring, but you're still able to create this, this intention and have this direction for yourself. It, it's almost like having a, having a compass, but not having a map and not, under, not quite knowing the landscape and still feeling like you're being curious and you're exploring this this new landscape of possibilities. Mm. I love this. This is this has been something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And one of the the sort of the dichotomy that I'll I'll plop this into is the difference between uh, purpose and destiny. And just to zoom out for a moment, uh, there's a, this exercise I've been doing a lot of lately where I find things that are synonyms are very close to synonyms and then do what I can to unpack the nuance that's there. It's like if these things seem seem the same or almost the same, can I can I dive into them and, and create a, a mile of difference between them? And in that, you really get access to this rich nuance and subtlety that it can be incredibly valuable. But you can often hear people use the words purpose and destiny. I think purpose is sort of more of a, a popular term these days. And the way that I've began to relate to them, just so so connected to what you're sharing. So purpose, and you, and you hear a lot in the self-help literature of, uh, I'm going to teach you how to find your purpose. And I think this is so important. I'll probably end up doing a, an audio recording around this specific subject for our patrons at High Existence, just diving deep into the intricacies here, because I see it as such a trap that people can fall into. And it's almost like their curiosity gets deployed towards this, uh, this question that really isn't worth answering. Mm -hmm. And they're not really, what they should be questioning is why they're trying to answer it so much. And it's, it's often, it's like people who, who so deeply want to put a dent in the universe, it's because they wouldn't know that they existed otherwise. And they're not, they don't feel like they, that there's a permission to exist and acceptance of who they are that is, that, is, that is missed. So the sense of purpose is like our linear mind is wanting to cling to a path that we can see that is like, this is who I am and this is why I'm here in the world. And it's connected to this notion of certainty of wanting to have it pinned down and know what it is. And part of it, and I'm, I'm really skeptical of a lot of this stuff because I see so clearly how people use it as currency in conversation. Oh, what are you up to in the world? Well, I'm here, I'm on a mission to serve 1 million, blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, <laughs> come on. It's like, did you, was that a script that you came up with? Like, am I, who am I talking to here, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and that sense of purpose, I, it just feels really artificial to me. and. At worst, it creates this this way of uh, relating to what you're you're here for, where it blinds you to 
the other signs and signals that you should be paying attention to. And that would, would be what I would describe as your destiny. So this is connected more towards the having the compass piece, but not really having the clear map. And there's these, um, these different layers to it, but I would connect it to David White's notion of the conversational nature of reality. Part of the reason that you can't forecast out and have the, the trajectory planned with your linear thinking mind is because it's not just you writing that book. It's a co-authorship. You're being supported and in exchange with life where you take an action and then more gets revealed. And, and it's this whole sort of dynamic dance and this process. So the real point of destiny is not to know for sure this is what you're here for in the world so that you can, you know, share that with people and, and get clients or, or like feel the sense of self-importance and significance because you've you know, crafted some kind of mission statement that makes you feel worthy and valuable. It's no, it's, it's letting that stuff go and getting your feet planted on the ground and finding the microscopic purpose of the moment. What is it that you can do with what's in front of you right now, wherever you are and as time is passing by, that where you can be an expression of that ultimate thing that life's sort of drawing you towards there's this gravity that that is part of this element of of destiny that isn't just this forcefulness or this pushing through that the linear mind tends to think of these these purposes but there's a uh, you're being drawn towards something and 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 you're being invited into things and it's being attentive and attuned to that um and to me that's this this relationship to to destiny now it doesn't mean it's all just in the moment, but there's almost this fractal uh, component to it where you have these microscopic moments in the day, but then there is this broader, more zoomed out meaning of the larger arc of your life. But too many people get preoccupied with this larger arc and lose the opportunity of actually making that arc something significant by not mm. attending to those invitations and those, those, uh, the, the, the wellspring of opportunity that is already here and now, but we're just distracted with trying to figure out what is the purpose that will make me, you know, mm. someone of, of, of note. Mm. So mm. that is, that, wow. That's connecting so many dots in my mind. And it, it makes me think of, um, there's a, there's a wonderful quote around the, the experience, um, or what we're not necessarily searching for, a purpose in life, but the experience of being alive. And for me, I know that I, when I've been looking for that sense of purpose, it, the, the answers are always temporary. And, and actually I've more recently had experiences where it feels like even the very question of what is my purpose is almost a, it feels like a foolish question when you're in that state of reverie and feeling connected to the world for me I, I remember one one moment I was stand up paddleboarding back in Brighton and going under this this murmuration of starlings this this flock of dancing starlings and that question of um of, of purpose just it just kind of melts away and fades away and I think this can be particularly it can be quite a pernicious question for people particularly in their in their early 20s or, or in any time of transition really and and for me, it's very connected to um, this notion of passion as well. And there's there's a very common, you know, in self help literature, when 
in, in the, the mainstream culture, there's this idea of find your passion. And for me, it feels like that's, it's almost, it's almost very pointless advice because if you're someone who, who has come alive through what they're doing, then you don't need the advice. But if you, if you haven't found that thing, then you feel like you're lacking it. And you feel like there are these other people who found this thing that is their calling and is their passion. And you feel like you're, you're lacking. And so for me, and, and this is something that I, I tried to teach in my time at Escape the City, um, kind of guiding people through these, these liminal periods in their life, it was more tuning into what are you curious about as opposed to what is this one burning passion, which is often also kind of quite unsustainable as well, as opposed to that kind of more deeper leaning into those, those questions and those explorations. Hmm. Before you said it, the word passion was, was coming up for me because I see it being used as much, if not more, uh, when compared to purpose. It's just such a, such a common thing. And interestingly, I think there is some truth to it, but not in the way that people tend to think of it. A lot of the ways that people tend to think of it is by objectifying the passion in a way. The passion is out here and it's a thing that I have passion for. And I find that to be just such a, such a bottleneck on the true nature of, of passion, like what really is passion. Passion isn't something that you have. It's something that you are, you know, you, you be passionate. So when someone says, find your passion, don't go looking for that thing that you really like to do. It, it's, it's too constraining. Sure. There are things that you really like to do, but there are things you really like to do across so many domains. And there's some things that you might not really like to do that you really should do. And you might learn to like to do if you would do it more. And there's important lessons in learning to move through those sort of thresholds of resistance. And so it's not just like the recipe to the good life isn't just find what you're passionate about and then happily ever after. It's just, that's, that's, a, that's an illusion. But if you can find that well within yourself that is this up, uprising of passion towards life, then you can begin to uh, sort of re-enchant yourself with mm. the world and you're not limited to oh the, any one thing that oh this is the thing that I'm that I am passionate about and that I really want to do. You're you're uh, relating to passion more of this this something that arises in you that can flow out of you into the world, and it also has this uh, contagious effect where it can invite other people into becoming passionate. But it could be you can have this power of evoking passion in again the most mundane things. Um, and that's part of the issue with the whole passionate approach is that people tend to glamorize things and they, they gravitate towards the things that have prestige or they feel like other people would really compliment them for. Often unconsciously, they don't know they're gravitating towards those things for those reasons. And those, there's a lot of things that lack glamour and lack prestige that are incredi incredibly meaningful and incredibly worth uh, attending to. You know, even washing dishes, there's something simple and uh, meditative and like something beautiful in the process of washing dishes. If you can get yourself there, you know, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you make that your life's purpose or, or you, f you feel like this is what you're, 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 you're just stuck in this box of washing dishes for the rest of your life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you, if you find yourself there, it's up to you to be the one who can be passionate about that. 
and and so there's there's this responsibility of passion uh, that I think is under discussed, and it's what I'm attempting to point to. Mm, yeah, and what um as you were saying that I I thought about a a story of of Thoreau that I I found out about recently that he. He spent some time in his twenties trying to make it as a as a journalist in New York City, um, before moving back to to Walden Pond to kind of explore that connection that I think you were alluding to, and and I, I think about this particularly with with writing, and I think it goes back to that the conversational frontier of reality that you, that you were that you mentioned earlier, and for me, what I what I love about writing is the opportunity to overhear yourself thinking something that you didn't realize that you already knew and it is that um i think i think this is exactly the same with passion it is that that exchange and that flow of giving and receiving both what's kind of um the ideas that you have in your mind and then also creating space for something new to flow through and i think that's that's how i've been trying to orientate my life in a way just building days and weeks around how can I create the conditions where this this flow state can kind of arise um, naturally and then just and living at that edge and paying attention to whatever whatever comes up in the moment through whatever medium whether it's conversations with you or or writing or or drawing something you know I think it's the the real juice in life for me is trying to live at that edge between yeah Mm, that's the that's the edge of where things are alive it feels yeah, like yeah 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 anywhere anywhere else is sort of things that have already sort of passed us by and i mean I'm, i imagine there's some really great sort of surfing analogies here you know you gotta <laughs> if you're trying to ride the wave you know like however many feet away from the the crest, you know, if you're trying to, I'm not a surfer, so it, it makes it hard for me to <laughs> construct analogies out of this, but my intuition says that there's something, something here in that about like riding, you know, it's like finding, oh, I love this. Okay. So here I'm, I'm, I've, I've got the analogy with it. and this connects to the piece around destiny and the piece around the conversational nature of reality. What I love about the whole idea of riding a wave is that it's not just a thing that you're doing it's a thing you're doing in relationship to something else that's moving and fluid and so it it requires both our our movement and our our dynamism and responsiveness up against something else that is also moving and dynamic yeah. and in the collaboration between both of those things we move forward together <laughs> and and that is uh, a one way of, of of thinking about life but so many people are trying to surf with like stiff legs yeah. because it, they're confused about what a wave is or <laughs> they're confused about how they actually are supposed to get to shore or something. Yeah. Something like so that. just to extend the metaphor a bit further, um, I think that even if you, if you go back to the time before you even catch the wave, like 98% of surfing is just kind of paddling around and kind of waiting for the moment. And I think the real art to surfing is actually paying attention to the ocean and positioning yourself for the right wave to catch and if you watch the the really experienced surfers they they often they don't really have to paddle much into the waves but they've put themselves in precisely the right position where the wave's energy 
will carry them into it. And it's purely a case of, of dropping in. And then exactly as you say, once you're riding along the wave, you might have this intention or this idea in, in your mind of you, you might be able to get barreled in the section or you want to do a cutback here. But if you're not paying perfect attention to what the wave is doing, you're just going to get the lip on the head, like you're going to wipe out and hit, and hit the reef. And it's I, I think of it as, I'm not much of a musician, but I think it's almost like improvisational jazz where there's certain... Um, certain melodies or certain uh, ways of playing that you're familiar with but really you're responding to the music or you're responding to the wave in in that moment and and for me the um the wonderful and this is a, a moment that a lot of surfers will, will rave about but when you when you get into that barrel for me that's when your attention and the wave's energy almost merge it's like as you get closer and closer to the wave when it finally kind of throws itself over you, your your attention and awareness merge with the ocean and there's this feeling of timelessness and stillness. And um, I, I think it's it's similar to these kind of deep states of meditation. And that's the moment that a lot of surfers kind of live for and will go to ridiculous lengths to try and feel that. Mm. <laughs> mm. I love to, I, thanks for giving me the chance to talk about surfing. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was awesome and I love I love the sort of level of, of nuance you're able to bring and and bringing in some some jargon there as well you know the the reef and the, <laughs> and the whatever barrels or yeah i should pick up surfing um there's there's something about that last piece that you're that that you're you're speaking about that merger that um I find really interesting and I don't know what it is, but this longing to get away from ourselves or something. And maybe that's not the right way of framing it. Um, it is, it is a way of getting away from a certain aspect of what we might call ourself. Um, but there's this other way I think of it as a communion, you know, a, a coming together. Um, and I think this is something that we all so, deeply crave and it's and i think curiosity is a part of how we're able to get there because the absence of curiosity is the same as having you know sort of steel walls around you and if you have those steel walls built how could you ever merge you haven't made yourself permeable enough to have that have that moment of of uh you know sort of surrendered uh, envelopment into the the grand swirl of isness, mm. and and I think it's it's tragic in some ways because part of the driving energy of building those walls and having that certainty would be resolved if you were able to allow yourself to merge and feel beyond and bigger than uh, the limited conception of oneself. Mm. Because in doing that, then a lot of the, the need for, for certainty begins to, to dissipate because you find, you find the safety in being held together by all that is there. There's this thing I keep coming back to around uh, the need to, f to feel like we've got it all held together. You know, There's a lot of stress in this society and holding it all together. I'm trying to hold it all together. What if you don't have to? What if all your life, all along, 
you've been held together mm. by this, by this, whatever this crazy reality is. Mm. You know, we have so many words to describe whatever is going on here. Mm. And true, the true spirit of curiosity to me is just kind of shaking, shaking one's head like, what, what is really going on? Like, this is so wild, you know? It's, when you really sit and consider, like, this is the whole setup, you know, if this was some cosmic reality TV show on uh, intergalactic, you know, uh, you know, cable, the aliens would be like, what is this? What is this? You know? Yeah, I, I really love that. And I feel like um, my own journey has been, been one of of maybe shedding those layers of identity and for me a big one was shedding the layer of, of being a startup founder which I felt a lot of attachment and got a lot of validation from yeah. and when I left this company that I'd spent five years pouring my heart and soul into there was this real space of like like who 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 am I like are my friends still gonna talk to me like do I have any kind of self-worth without this identity to kind of bolster me up to the surface and I've, I've, I haven't really tried to articulate this before, but I, I've been doing a, um, an active inquiry meditation recently that I, I believe the Dalai Lama practices. And it's, it's incredibly simple. It's just based around the question, who am I? And it starts off with, with kind of imagining, okay, I'm not these, these sounds coming in. I'm not the, the fly in the background of this room. I'm not the, the sound of my breathing. And then you go, okay, so if I'm not these sounds, um, am I this body? And you kind of examine the feelings in your, in your body and they kind of arise and pass. And then you, you go one layer deeper into am I my thoughts and emotions? And you, you kind of strip away these, these layers of what you're not. And what you're left with is, is ultimately just pure awareness. And I was thinking this morning, actually, how interesting it is that you can potentially reach that place of connectedness and oneness that you were referring to purely through sitting with that question of who am I for long enough and I find that fascinating mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and yeah I think you're right that we are all searching on some level for that that moment and that state of intimate communion with with other people with the world and it might be through the the, the 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 doorway and the portal I think for a lot of people is romantic relationship mm-hmm. and you, you might you find that someone who is finally able to to see you for who you are and you have that connection and that acts as a that romantic love acts as a portal to the oneness and we then I think the risk is we become so attached to that person as being our access point mm-hmm. to that state of, of of wonder and reverie and beauty and we don't realize that we can get there under our own steam mm-hmm. um, and, and the same is true I think in this in the spiritual community of people who are kind of have had these moments through mushrooms or through ayahuasca experiences and then view that as being the only mm-hmm. route or avenue to get to that state and the risk is then that grasping hold of the the the, the key that unlocked that for us without realizing that this state is available in in any number of different ways mm so important yeah it's it's the experience is a reference point to something that's possible inside of very different contexts very different you know sort of geometries of of experience and 
if we don't remember that, then we end up getting addicted in some ways and snared in that thing. And that can even support in our losing access, even through that pathway, because we, at first we didn't know what we were getting into. So we kind of stumble into it with a degree of grace. But then as we see how much we, we really want it and want to keep having this experience. And if we think that we can only access it through this particular doorway, Mm -hmm. then it's almost like, uh, you know, locking, like locking the door, Mm. um, but locking ourselves out from, from the inside. So we still have our hand on the lock, (laughs) but we just think that, Oh, the door slammed shut. We can't, can't make our way in mm. this that, that is something that i'd like to ask you um mm. i've been i suppose i've been exploring different modalities mm-hmm. in the past couple of years of ways to access that kind of state and for me that's been through through breath work or through through meditation through surfing and um also I, i'd say one of the most powerful has been through through grief and I think the common thread between all these different modalities is that there is a degree of, of ego dissolution and there's a willingness to be um, obliterated in that moment by whatever is coming up. And through that, through that cracking, it's almost like that then allows the light to come through. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question is, is what have been the experiences or moments that have allowed you to access that state? And how can we, how can we try and cultivate that more? Mm. Hmm. So what are the things that have uh, allowed me to access that state? So many things, a number of them you've already named. I mean, there's psychedelic experiences. And I think that's a, a very common pathway, particularly with the high existence audience. Um, there have been meditative access points, just deeper sort of, um, you might say epistemic revelations, like understanding that my um, constructs and, you know, the, the sort of finger pointing at the moon kind of thing, you know, you don't confuse our words for the reality that we're placing them on. Um, understanding that and seeing that has been a huge piece for me to, uh, on one hand, recognize that that's not only in the, in the things that I'm mapping out there, but it's a, it's a mapping in here. Um, the symbolic version that, uh, of Mike that my brain constructs is like, a um, like considering that to be me, like actually me, capital M, me, is like thinking that a third grader's solar system diorama is the same as the actual solar system. It's such a rudimentary reconstruction and it has like similarities, but there's so much detail that is missed in trying to reduce something down to that. So I think that contemplation and also uh, paying attention to those dynamics within myself have been really important to support me in freeing myself from uh, being trapped or caught up in rumination around an illusion. And it's understanding that a lot of those constructions are, are, are convenient for some purpose. Why? Why is it that I'm having negative self-talk? Why am I judging myself right now? What is going on? What is this in service 
too. What part of me is really advocating for this? It's coming from somewhere. So having, having that deeper sense of my, the way I think about myself is not myself and the whole sense of, you know, a, a koan of, uh, you know, the hand, the hand can't grasp itself, but it can feel. And so be in that space of feeling, be in the being, the beingness of it and not necessarily like you can't, you can't grab a hold of the, the, from that mode, from that model, from the, the processing of thought, any attempt at grasping yourself from that place is uh, like reduces your full beauty. So that whole like line of, of inquiry, I'm a very like intellectual guy. So, you know, and I've, I've, my biggest issue was getting ensnared in my mind. Um, and so I've, I've kind of had to go through that process of unpacking these things in order to, you know, kind of free myself from the chains. So that piece is really important. Uh, another piece that's humbled me is I'm a magician. And so I see that I've had many, many experiences being on the side of, uh, of, of sort of two realities. You know, I'm, I'm generating an artificial reality for the spectator that they watch um, and, and they see it as one thing. And meanwhile, I'm on the other side uh, with a bigger, more complete perspective. Mm. And that knowing that and having that experience, that visceral experience over and over and over again, I think has shaped my intuition to the point of there's more here. There's more here. Like I'm like pretending that I'm on the side of the, of the spectator uh, and the universe is the magician. It's like where... What is it that is being you know, that isn't going disclosed? Where's the sleight of hand here? What's what is where's the deception taking place and allowing myself to probe deeper? Uh, and that has allowed for I think an always always be in beta kind of relationship to worldviews and and self concepts and, and stuff like that. So there's that piece as well. I wanna I wanna see if there's anything that arises that feels more more practical hmm. just just to touch briefly yeah. on the magician point of view i yeah. i'd never considered that before and i think that's so powerful because i've i've experienced these these moments of what feel like a great remembering when you experience that you are part of this much bigger much grander picture and that's almost like the the viewer seeing through the magician's sleight of hand for a moment and remembering that this is not what it seems. Mm -hmm. But then I often find myself going back into states of forgetting where I get wrapped up in, like you were saying, negative self-talk or just the illusion of being being Johnny. <laughs> and and I and I feel like for me the journey is is shortening that cycle of remembering and forgetting and remem remembering that this is all the ego is is like a, a cosmic sleight of hand. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. it's, and that's always there. Um and yeah, keep it. That, that's a really beautiful way to put it, and I mm. never, never made that connection before. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love the. There's a lot of really awesome analogies that emerge in considering sleight of hand and magic and all of that stuff that feels so intuitive to me, given that I've practiced that art form for so long. Um, and let's see. Well. One other piece to, to sort of uh, roll back to, to your, your question, I think that the, 
grief has been really powerful for me as well. And really embracing um, that loss that, that one encounters. And there's something almost, it's like a world ending phenomenon. You know, it's like the, the way that we were viewing the world because something happens that is almost unfathomable or at least very difficult to swallow. It, dis, it disrupts the standard program mm. uh, that had been running that's hard to see. And this is a part of sort of the, the layers sort of uh, washing away. There's this tendency of that which is pervasive to become invisible because we just develop the sort of signal blindness. It's like always there, so we don't even think to consider it, to think that it's there. Like fish in water. Yes, exactly. And so um, when, there, when we encounter these massive disruptions, whether it's the uh, expectations not going as, as planned for a job, you know, we're about to get this job and something happens and we get fired or losing someone who's close to us or whatever it may be that is completely unforeseen, it disrupts that program. And then we are able to see it because, because now it's, it's been made visible in the contrast of not going in the direction that we, we thought it would go. And by a sort of engaging that process of grief and, and allowing the, the sort of that world, um, the process to sort of reboot now from a, from a larger, more expansive place mm. where it has more room for, for uncertainty and we're less, less like, uh, we're less required to hold on to these expectations. I think mm. that's a really important piece because if we're, if we're not, if, if we're holding on to these, these expectations, it's almost like these, the, there's a gift in the loss, right? We lose this thing and it drives us closer to life. Before that, we're caught up in these, the, the, the animating uh, spectacles of the mind and, and missing out on the, the real beauty and luxury of, of the living, breathing moment. And so that's where the sort of the, the gift can come forth. And it's so important to embrace that grief because to me, that's the, that's the process like you were sharing. The light comes in or the, we get this, this, this opening experience. It's the shedding of a layer. And, and from that process, we're, we're embracing what happened. We're not in resistance to, to, the, to what life is, is dealing us. And that, I think, is, is important for things to kind of uh, sort of reconstitute in a, in, a, in a sort of more beautiful way. And I'm sort of going on a bit of a tangent from the, from the original question, but to, to offer a question into the space, because I asked you earlier, what's a really good question that you like? And I'm reminded of a question that I like. Well, two of them. What do you lose when you accept the things you gain? And what do you gain when you accept the things you lose? And that helps. We have this real way of thinking in binaries of like good or bad. And, mm. and oftentimes the, the picture isn't as clear cut. And so I offer that as a, as a reflection, as a thing to uh, consider. Hmm. So what comes up for me? Um, I really love that 
that notion of the the gifts inherent in loss and yeah in the context of grief I, I think something that I struggled with um and still do sometimes was I I felt like there have been for me tremendous gifts through going through the grieving process and in some ways it's almost been it was like the lead domino that led me down this path of vipassana meditation and ayahuasca ceremonies and a lot of this um this beautiful growth that has has come from that but it was triggered by the the loss of my partner and fiance um who who took her own life and i wrestled with this 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 dichotomy of on the one hand, if I could go back in time and and change anything, I I would in a heartbeat. But at the same time, that doesn't stop me from appreciating and being grateful for these these gifts that felt like they have have come from allowing myself to feel the depths of the pain of grief. And 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 for me, I I really resonate with the Rumi quote that the cure for the pain is in the pain and I think any any feeling fully felt is is a doorway to bliss and there's a um there's an analogy by by Dante in his in his novel uh, the the inferno and there's this this image of the the icy lake of hell that has nine layers to it and each layer that you dive down it gets more 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 cold more icy more painful but if you make it all the way down to the ninth layer there's a, a doorway to heaven and I feel like in the moments that I've been able to fully embrace the pain of loss, I've simultaneously felt like that doorway has opened to a greater sense of oneness and wholeness. And it's something that I I feel like has come in many layers. Like initially there was the the loss of just losing my partner and feeling into that, but after that there was almost this realization that i i was grieving for this loss of a shared identity that we constructed together mm -hmm. and the vision that i'd had of the next four to five years of us buying a house in bristol and and moving on and that everything i thought i knew about the future had suddenly been co combusted into into stardust mm. and from that place it's almost like the the tide had gone out and carried all that away with it. And I was just left kind of sitting on the beach, waiting to see what the, the incoming tide was going to bring in. Mm. And yeah, I, um, I've really enjoyed talking to you about, about grief recently. And I think it's something that in our society and culture, we're not taught how to feel or process because we have this, this, this image of, of wanting to stay strong in the in the face of it and that's that's what a lot of people a lot of my good friends well-meaning friends said to me you're you're being very strong in the face of this and actually for me the the learning process in the journey was was figuring out how to be weak and how to surrender to it mm. and surrender to the pain and from that place something something new can kind of emerge mm -hmm. but I, I feel like it's such an important conversation that we that we need to have and something that's very counterintuitive to the way a lot of us are raised and these ideas that we have. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, so much, so much to be said about this. I mean, to speak of the loss that you experienced when you lost your partner, like you were describing, you didn't just lose your partner, you lost not only, you, you lost the relationship, but you also lost the future that you had been planning, this world you had ended and envisioning together. You lost the, the space between the two of you that you, that you sort of shared, which is like this, co- this co-construction, these, these different ways of re- relating with one another. And you lost what her presence invited out of you, that unique dimension of Johnny, mm. that, that somehow she, she uniquely brought forth. All of those things, the grieving process is so much more than just a, just an individual who is, who is passed. A lot of it can be uh, so, so intimate and so personal and so core to, to what we think life is and where our li- life was going. Um, and so it's so much more than just, oh, that person is gone now. It's almost like, yes, and somehow a part of me feels gone too. How do I, how do I, you know, where do I go from here? And I, I love the piece that you're sharing about, you know, the, the cure for the pain is in the pain. And I think what, you know, it's, it can easily be misconstrued of wallowing or just like just being, you know, so engrossed in pain that you get stuck there. And that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing a, a full embrace, diving into to the pain and, and, and looking, looking at, at what's there. I had this sense arise in me of what if these feelings that we're having are uh, their communications and what if is being demanded is our listening to them and if we do not listen then what happens some they come out sideways we end up you know screaming at the people that, that we care about you know, or we end up uh, disconnecting you know and um, these are, these are things that are really worth, uh, you know, sort of a, a gentle, a gentle lens. Um, and I, it reminds me of this quote, it could be Alan Watts, it's certainly Wattsian in nature, but uh, running from the fear is the fear. It feels very similar to me. It's just this, this sense of, oh, I'm not, I'm not listening. Mm-hmm. I'm not listening here. I'm, I'm, I'm perpetuating. I'm, I'm, I feel guilty about my guilt. I feel shameful about my shame. And, mm. and that keeps us in the sense of gridlock. But yes. if we start the conversation by knowing a part of us feels shame and another part of us is capable of accepting that shame, then we can begin to sort of support in, in, some, in some degree of movement. Yes. And one thing on the, on the grief piece that to me really um, feels important is Uh, the sense of the um, unfolding, the the like. Imagine if, if when you when you love someone and, and you have a connection with them, and this could be they, that if they if they pass away or the relationship itself uh, dies in some way, the love that you had with them is this coiled up like ribbon or this this just this thing that is, is forged in you. And in the process of grief, it's, you know, when we lose that thing, it demands that that come out of us in some way that we have 
that we allow ourselves to to feel the grief that's there, to feel the loss, and and not just contemplate it, but have have this have the sense of it. And in that process, the the grief wells up and flows out of us often through through tears, and and that is it's like the love that we had for that person becomes the uh, sort of the the paint in which we get to cover the landscape of the world. The love that they deposited in our heart gets reflected out into the into our witnessing of the world. Mm. If I think if Greece fully embraced, and it's a process, this isn't something that happens the day after the loss, but it invites us into a deeper relationship with life itself, a deeper connection to the privilege of simply existing. And that is a really wonderful place to, to arrive. Mm. Um, That's, that is beautiful. And it's, it's really, um, it's a reflection of I, I think the story that I've come to um, to tell myself about what this loss has meant to me. And for me, Sophie was the first person who I felt like she, the first my first long term relationship, and I felt like she kind of taught me what it meant to love. And in a way, I've come to view her passing as almost as almost like. An invitation now that we've we've kind of spread her ashes into the sea and her her atoms are a part of this of this world it's almost like the invitation is for me to learn to fall in love with the world anew that she is now a part of mm-hmm. and that for me has been this very powerful question of how can i how can i fall in love with the world on this on this day and viewing it as a as a process and something that has to be remade and you each each day and yeah it's it's so powerful and and a big part of that is the piece that you you touched on before about listening to our our bodies and i think that i've become aware of how we're very good at being in our minds and telling our bodies what to do and ordering our bodies around like do do this do that but actually creating space to just listen to what our bodies are trying to tell us and and whatever is coming up in the moment and i think the more that we ignore what is surfacing the the louder those demands get maybe in the beginning it's it's like a whisper but then it starts to manifest as some kind of physical pain or the more that we ignore these these invitations from our body to to embrace some aspect of ourselves or it's it's almost like we just need to give a part of our of ourselves a hug sometimes we just need to feel something or embrace mm-hmm. something or acknowledge something and then it will just kind of go away and become integrated into the wider whole and the the wider practice is is just asking how can we embrace these these repressed part of ourselves in in different areas of our life and i think the grief piece is is a big one and it's it's a huge ask for a lot of people to create the space to listen and to allow themselves to feel the pain of whatever that loss. And I, and I think grief can show up in a number of different ways. It doesn't just have to be through death. I think we can grieve the loss of a, of a working identity or different aspects of ourselves or things that we cling on to. Mm-hmm. And that process of acknowledgement and, and letting go is something that is, is a, 
it's, it's a lesson and requires to kind of come full circle. I think it requires courageous curiosity to, to lean into. Mm. I love it. The question, how can I fall more in love with life, with this world, I think is a really important and deep question to consider because if we can't fall in love with this world, all attempts at change and transformation are going to be uh, just, it's not going to come from the right place. We're not going to actually be successful. We might just end up creating more of uh, what we dislike about this world. And this is true no matter what kind of hardship you face, no matter how difficult life has been for you, there, there is, to be alive is a gift period. And if we can't fall in love with the privilege that we have to, to be alive, then anything that we try and do from this place of living is, is going to be limited. Because the, the people who you're interacting with in the world are a part of life. They're representatives. They're of this world. And if we don't love this world, then subtly people will feel that we don't love them. And I think this is, this, is, this is deep and this is important and, and connected to this whole conversation of grief, of like letting go and, and, and always remembering that it's not just loss. You know, it's like, what do you gain in the things you lose? Letting go is grabbing a hold of an opportunity to grasp. It's, it's grabbing on to a, 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 a new life in which new choices have been made available. There's, there's seeds that are planted. There's space that's opened up. So these things are important considerations. I think this is all uh, some, some very sort of beautiful notes to, to end on. And I'd love to offer one final uh, space for you to tell us about what you're, what you're do- doing with Curious Humans. Tell us about the podcast. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the newsletter. What is it that you're, what is it that you're doing with this? Sure. Um, yeah, I just wanted to let let your words sink in. I yeah. think that was that was very very beautiful and very yeah well articulated. Um, in terms of what what I've been focusing on in the last last year or so, I think for me this this project of Curious Humans, which at the moment is a is a newsletter and a podcast, has been a a vehicle for my own exploration and my own curiosities and, and just as serving as an excuse to have deep dive conversations like this one with people who I who I care about but don't necessarily get the opportunity to have such a deep dive and for me it's been so rewarding in just the process of itself and part of me almost feels like even if no one read the newsletter or if no one listened to the podcast episodes then it still would have been worth it just for those experiences and I think I'm at this point at, at the moment where I'm I'm wondering what the next evolution of this looks like. And I've been really interested in this question of what would a curriculum that is is fit for the future look like? And and what's kind of currently coming up for me is, is this idea of creating a, a how-to-human uh, manual. So asking questions of like, how do, how, how do we listen deeply? How do we sit with uncertainty? How to unlearn, how to learn, how to love and be loved and and assembling a kind of um, a collection of, of elders and teachers um, 
and asking not only why are these important, but how can these crucial life skills be be learnt and 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 embodied in a day to day life? And I really love this. There's a quote from a Papua New Guinea tribe that knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of of what we what we talk about is it's at that very surface level. And I think with these how to human skills, they really they're really muscles that need to be strengthened. And so what I'm interested in is, is how to design a, a program or a school or, or an academy that is able to help people kind of uh, do these, these daily reps and, and um, embody these very essential kind of human skills in their mm. daily lives. Because I think that's what, it's what I need and I, think, I feel like it's what the world needs as well. So mm. that's what I'm currently exploring. Beautiful. So curiosity certainly won't be one of those how to human skills. No, not no, at all. Can't, can't include that. No, definitely not. No. Um, but I highly recommend listeners, if you if you enjoyed this conversation and you want more of Johnny, check out his podcast, uh, Curious Humans. And particularly, I enjoyed the interview with David White. David is a just incredible poet, uh, just a, a luminous mind, and uh, it's very enriching. And I also highly recommend uh, Johnny's newsletter. Uh, it's it's so easy to have you know have an inbox that's overflowing in these days, and I uh, I love Johnny's newsletter because it's always packed with incredible nuggets of just gems across the internet, and uh, it's it's always it's an email I always enjoy getting, and that's a rare thing to say I feel like <laughs> in in today's world, and so. Um, yeah, check that out. Where do they go? Curious humans. So um, the, the newsletter is uh, johnny.life, J-O-N-N-Y dot life. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. And, and for me, part of the joy of writing this has been the the conversations that it sparked and the replies and the threads. Yeah. And it feels like there's a community building. Mm-hmm. And every time I put one out, I get kind of 30, 30 or 40 thoughtful responses. And it just fills me up to to see that some of these ideas are resonating. So um, yeah, yeah, thank you for the kind words. Absolutely, and it, it's it's nice to see, because to me it feels like I'm getting, you know, access to the own, your, the own like, your own fruits of flexing your curiosity muscle, you know, getting this sort of, <laughs> ma- this, uh, you know, four, three course meal served of all of these different sort of nuggets of, of insight, insight and interestingness, so. <laughs> Uh, I'll have the link below for for those of you that want to check that out. But Johnny, this has been a wonderful, sprawling, interesting conversation. So appreciate you spending the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so glad that we had time to make this happen. It's been awesome. Awesome. All right. Peace out, y'all. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.